0: back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Ramaldi in for Leslie Marshall, who, as promised, will be back uh, in her regular chair hosting uh, in about a half an hour. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to steer away from my story about uh, being ejected from a Donald Trump rally for peacefully protesting to... Uh, To be joined by an author and professor that I'm very happy to uh, have on the show. Her name is Meg Jacobs. She teaches history and public affairs at Princeton University and is author of Panic at the Pump, The Energy Crisis and the Transformation of American Politics in the 1970s, which was just released by Hill and Wang. Meg, welcome to The Leslie Marshall Show. How are you today? Hi. So um, I wanted to... uh, Start to uh, discuss the interview basically by citing uh, a bit of the opening of your article, which people can find at theatlantic.com. It's entitled "America's Never-Ending Oil Consumption." Um, the The beginning of it uh, is quote. I want to quote you as: "The United States accounts for less than five percent of the world's population, but it consumes about twenty percent of the global energy supply. The average American citizen uses nearly." Two times as much fossil fuel as a person living in Great Britain. Americans love cars and big homes and hate public transportation. Constant warnings about climate change and the catastrophic consequences of American energy habits apparently are not enough to stop the temptation to consume. Why do you think that this is the case, Meg?
1: Well, Americans have a long love affair uh, with their consumer lifestyles. It's a deeply ingrained part of American culture, nothing more so than the car. This didn't just happen automatically, but is a product of the way that we've organized our lives, especially uh, since the end of World War II with the spread of suburbs, with our massive investment in highways, uh, our relative lack of investment in in public transportation, and above all uh, through public policies that ensure access to uh, ever-cheap and abundant fuel.
0: You know, I think, like you said, this didn't just happen. And, you know, this is obviously a a big problem when you look at the effects of climate change and, you know, American attitudes... Uh, seem to be changing. Uh, you, you look at a poll from uh, Monmouth University, which was released um, earlier this year, that said shows that 70% of Americans believe that the climate is changing. You know, a lower percentage find that the main cause is uh, human activity, but that also seems to be increasing. So, uh, Americans seem to be becoming uh, more aware of the problem, and we almost, uh, well, we did have an opportunity to kind of change um, our path with our energy consumption, not only how much we use but the type of energy that we use back when uh jimmy carter was president as many people um are familiar with and you touch on uh, greatly in your piece for the atlantic um Another portion that's cited from your article is you talk about when President Carter had solar panels installed on the White House roof. Um, He called for a billion-dollar investment in solar research. Uh, He pushed for legislation that included the 1978 National Energy Act, which uh, created federal grants for energy-efficient homes and buildings. Uh, He also led the creation of the Department of Energy, uh, which is a uh, cabinet-level body charged with dealing with these issues, but he was not, as you point out, able to find support for an oil tax. Um, What do you think America could be like today if we had followed President Carter's lead on alternative energy almost 40 years ago?
1: Well, no one was more hopeful than Jimmy Carter, and no one was more committed uh, to conservation than uh, President Carter, and as you mentioned, it was this... Great moment. That's how uh, that's how he perceived it when he installed solar panels on the White House roof—32 solar panels uh, that you could see from Pennsylvania Avenue. And the thought and the promise, according to Carter back then, uh, was that the country, if it followed his lead and recommendations, could get at least 20 percent of its total energy from the sun and other renewables by the year 2000. Uh, So here. We are in 2016, nowhere near that number. Um, But in the last couple of years, we have seen progress. Uh, We have seen uh, the number of uh, the amount of wind and solar energy on the rise. So it suggests that possibly we are turning a corner. uh, But as you point out, there was this missed opportunity of about uh, 40 years or so.
0: And one of the reasons that things changed we'll talk about you know in a couple minutes here as mm-hmm. as to what happened during the energy crisis but at the end of that energy crisis to kind of show the other side of the coin excuse me when ronald reagan uh took office he had those solar panels removed from the white house removed all uh remaining federal controls on oil production uh, how responsible do you think that president reagan is for our energy policy and americans attitude toward consumption over the past 40 years as he kind of as you pointed out correctly, took a sharp turn away from the approach that President Carter, popular or not, uh, had been taking regarding energy.
1: Yes. So when Ronald Reagan runs for president in 1980, and I write about this in my book, he's able to run against Jimmy Carter and against all the promises of liberal government by pointing to the long gas lines in the summer of 1979 and really the failure of government to adequately address the energy crisis. And, and Ronald Reagan really, as you say, is the polar opposite of Jimmy Carter saying, you know, uh, uh, a commitment to using less is not the basis of should not be the basis of American energy policy and uh you know so he abandons efforts to push conservation he scales back um regulations uh to reduce pollution um uh, and he also relies more on uh on the free market, including uh getting uh supplies. From abroad, uh, which in the 1970s, the way Americans thought of the energy crisis was as a dependence on foreign oil. Uh, Reagan believed that it would be okay to import more as long as America would uh, could build up its military strength to protect access to global oil.
0: Now, if you look, uh, though, one of the byproducts of that as we've refused to consume less oil over the past four decades it hasn't just delayed um our country's transition to renewables as as you did point out we seem to be picking up speed in that area but nowhere near what president carter had hoped for by 2016 um it's not only affected that transition to renewables but it's also had a a great effect on how our foreign policy has been shaped um in some ways that ended up hurting us hasn't it meg
1: yeah so you know that became, the 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 reliance and really the acceptance on uh importing oil from abroad uh became most clear in 1991 with the first Gulf War so i start uh Panic at the Pump with George H.W. Bush, uh, uh, who moves to West Texas in 1948 in search of oil uh, and the American dream, and he's fairly successful. Uh, But then as our demand for oil starts to exceed our domestic supply, the need then is for greater imports. And I end the book uh, in 1991 with George H.W. Bush in the White House uh, authorizing Operation Desert Storm in the Middle least.
0: When we get back from our first break, I wanna, I'm going to ask Meg about how today's cheap gas prices uh, have affected the sale of cars and uh, larger cars and SUVs, and um, just talk about whether or not we as Americans have learned from the energy crisis of the 70s, or even uh, looking at more recently the gas prices that we had in the early 2000s when President George W. Bush was in office, where Americans were really feeling a, a pain at the pump. Um, we're going to talk about that when we get back from the break again uh, our guest this hour is meg jacobs who teaches history and public affairs at princeton and she is author of the new book panic at the pump the energy crisis and the transportation excuse me the transformation of american politics in the 1970s again that's meg jacobs you can follow her on twitter it's at meg jacobs 100 this is mark Grimaldi in for leslie marshall and we'll be right back after this quick commercial break
1: Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888 6 Leslie.
0: Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi sitting in for Leslie Marshall for one more segment. We are again joined by Meg Jacobs, who is author of the new book, Panic at the Pump, The Energy Crisis and the Transformation of American Politics in the 1970s, which is available at Amazon.com. Uh, before the break, I alluded to the fact that America is uh, dealing with some cheap gas prices right now. And one of the effects of that we've seen uh, in the United States is an increased uh, amount of Sales of larger cars and SUVs, and on the flip side, slowing sales of electric and hybrid vehicles. Um, have we, as Americans, failed to learn from our own history uh, in this area, would you say, Meg, looking at these trends?
1: I think the short answer here is yes, uh, because the data does show that relationship. That is, when gas prices fall, uh, so to. Um, did, uh, the, the, so too does the purchase, do the purchases of of energy efficient cars, uh, and you see a corollary increase in uh, the sales of big SUVs and all of that. Uh, and so that's a sort of that's a phenomenon that we see, as you say, uh, going up and down as gas prices uh, have gone been on this roller coaster in the last uh, decade or so.
0: It's just frustrating to me because, you know, you see the problems that Americans had, you know, with with – honestly just making ends meet when they had to deal with increased fuel prices so you saw americans becoming more conscientious of the amount of fuel that their vehicles use and then you know you can see how volatile oil prices are i mean you have a lot of different reasons that they can go up and down you know like you point out in your piece fracking uh, has mm-hmm. helped to drive down the cost of oil prices but many different issues even look back in the 1970s like the yom Kippur uh, war that you brought up and you know the united states was punished you uh, you know, looking at the oil prices because of our support for Israel. I mean, foreign affairs can change oil prices, different energy markets. It just seems like, you know, you, you'd you think that Americans wouldn't have such a short memory. I remember, uh, I, I, I don't remember if it was during his first or second term under President George W. Bush, but I remember gas prices over $4 a gallon, which is almost twice as much of what it was just a few months ago. That That's not really that long ago.
1: It isn't that long ago, and you would think that Americans would sort of come, have have adjusted to this real volatility in oil markets, uh, but that just doesn't seem to happen. And also, as as you mentioned, fracking, I think, uh, has really transformed uh, the landscape in a serious way. And so whatever you might think of fracking and whatever environmental consequences you might be concerned about, uh for many Americans, it gives them uh, a greater sense of security that supply, uh, along with cheap prices, are not going to be a problem for the foreseeable future.
0: You also bring up that, you know, uh, to talking about climate change, more than a quarter of all of the greenhouse gas emissions uh, come from the transportation sector. And, you know, you argue, I, I think effectively, that any successful plan to curb uh, climate change or global warming will depend on changes in consumption habits and you know you need leaders to bring this point up but we've seen the struggles to do so in the past so how in your opinion can our leaders make an effective argument to us about uh, a reduction in consumption if that's even possible
1: yes it's 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 a hard thing to do it's a hard argument to make i mean you know even as cars have become more efficient and our efficiency has improved uh, dramatically that is one sort of bright spot since the 1970s We drive three times as many miles as we did a few decades ago. Uh, So the trend is sort of ever greater consumption, even if we figure out ways to use our energy more efficiently. And it's hard, as you mentioned, for politicians to take this on because they don't see much of a political reward. So President Carter most famously tried... In the summer of 1979, as Americans were lined up, you know, in lines 500 cars deep uh, across the country uh, during a gas shortage, he did this really courageous thing and, and went on television and said to Americans, you know, you need to look inside. You need to look at your own habits and your own gluttonous ways, and you need to cut back, and that's the solution. And he says in a sort of preacher-like way, this will not only be good for the economy, this will not only restore national security, this will be good for your souls. But it just wasn't the message that Americans want to hear. So um, I write in my book about uh, an event that happens uh, around the same time as the speech that Carter gives, where in Levittown, Pennsylvania, there's literally a gas riot where uh, local citizens are so unhappy with the long lines and the high prices, they light uh, two cars on fire and they have uh, placards that that read, more gas, more gas, and that's the mentality. Uh, and Carter, as we know, did not get elected to a second term in office. So the costs, uh, the political costs of urging Americans to conserve seem awfully high. Uh, and you don't hear that much on the campaign trail.
0: No, you don't. And it's just frustrating because it seemed like he was trying to be the adult in the room. And, you know, ma- obviously it's it's unthinkable uh, this day and age to, to think of someone doing that politically because like you said the payoff isn't down the road but someone needs to think about down the road and think about the future um, of not just you know that themselves but not even their children but their grandchildren and you know it's tough because like you said it, it's politicians aren't looking that far down the road they're looking for their next you know election and and how that would pull so what are looking looking in the mirror what are some changes that the average American who is concerned about this Meg uh, can make to reduce their consumption of energy if you have any- me to recommend that is
1: well i'm no i i, I I'm no expert uh, um, but you know the but we have made improvements so and and many of these policies um did start in the Carter era when he urged for example uh even basic things like improved weatherization of home or home insulation uh, improved efficiency of our appliances uh carpools for example um use of ma- mass transit uh the big thing has to come though um from society wide commitments to switch to um other forms uh, to forms of renewable energies um and so you see that uh with president Obama's uh clean power plan for example or uh Hillary Clinton's call to install to deploy half a billion solar panels uh by if she were elected by the end of her first term and so that's really the move uh that leaders uh can can help direct us
0: towards. That was was a pretty good answer for a non-expert, Meg. I have to give you (laughs) credit there. I thought that was pretty good. I mean, I think the tools are there. It's just like you said, there has to be will by Americans to do it. And looking at the trend of Americans purchasing less energy-efficient vehicles than they were previously with these low gas prices, I think is a disturbing trend. But on the flip side, not to be all doom and gloom, there are some positives which you bring up um, in regard to energy and climate that you cite towards the end of your piece, which again, I would encourage everyone to check it out at The Atlantic. It's called America's never-ending oil consumption. Um, To quote you, in 2015, more people got jobs in solar and wind than in the oil industry, and employment in renewables was three times greater than in coal. Uh, Also in the U.S., we've posted two consecutive years of growth without a corresponding increase in emissions, suggesting we can keep global warming in check. Even as the economy picks up, uh, we've got the Paris Climate Agreement, which offers a cause for optimism. That was 195 countries around the world committing to cutting pollution that creates climate change. In the last uh, minute and a half here, is this enough of a start for Americans to listen to government on energy, despite, as you call it, quote, the damaging legacy of the 70s-era energy crisis, Meg?
1: Well, uh, Many people are starting to feel hopeful. I think one of the big news items uh, uh, is what experts do call this this decoupling—the idea that we can continue to have economic growth without a greater increase in our emissions—and uh, that's a that's a positive development because all too often uh, opponents of of any conservation sort of can pit. Economic growth against sort of more environmentally minded policies. So the key, and we seem to be moving in that direction, uh, is to be able to argue for and advance policies that, that, that allow for growth at the same time as we do better, uh, from an environmental point of view.
0: Meg, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you coming on the show. That was Meg Jacobs. Uh, she is author of the new book, Panic at the Pump, The Energy Crisis, and the Transformation of American Politics in the 1970s. You can buy it at Amazon.com. I would encourage you to also follow her on Twitter. It's at Meg Jacobs, 100. That's megjacobs O B S one zero zero. This has been Mark Ramaldi in for Leslie Marshall.